0: I want to begin with a question. The question is, what is easier? What is easier? Is it easier to build something or is it easier to tear down what other people have built? Is it easier to create something knowing you might be mocked or you might fail as you try to make it or is it easier being the one who criticizes and mocks? Is it easier being a coach and a player who's trained for the Super Bowl and has gone years and years on the practice field, or or being a couch potato armchair quarterback with the remote in your hand while you're eating Doritos and drinking Dr. Pepper? It is hard to believe strongly in something these days and stand firm on those things you believe in. It's hard. People of conviction are daily being attacked and even silenced into oblivion. And if you share an opinion that happens to offend someone, or try to create something wholesome and good to promote purity and godliness, the general public now sees you as the problem. And you most likely will get shouted down. If you share a belief other people don't like, don't be surprised if you'll be shunned or ostracized. Just ask J.K. Rowling, and you'll know what I'm talking about. So instead of causing trouble, scores of good people have chosen to remain silent, while at the same time giving the louder, more militant voices license to speak up without resistance. It is easier, it is easier to fade softly into the background And cause no waves than to be attacked and called names. The less attention I create, the less trouble will come my way. But what if Nehemiah took this stance? What if he stayed safe in the citadel of Susa because it would have been too much of a hassle to travel 1,500 miles to rebuild a wall that nobody wanted rebuilt? The Jews would have been left to suffer The city of God would have been desolate and God's glory would have been continued to be mocked. So the title of our message today is To Build or Not to Build. If you could open up to Nehemiah chapter three and four, that's what we're gonna look at today. Nehemiah three and four. Title is To Build or Not to Build. I wanna just kind of give you an update on where we're at, Nehemiah. If If you haven't been with us, Even that name could be a little confusing. Nehemiah, all Nehemiah was, was a cupbearer. That's what he was. He was a cupbearer to the king. What he would do is he would take the wine that was meant for the king. So imagine the king's right here. He'd take the wine and he'd take a sip of the wine. And if the wine was poisoned, he would die. But if the wine wasn't poisoned, it would be good for for the king to drink it. Very simple. I was explaining this to my son, and my son said, why didn't they just get a dog, pour the wine in the bowl, let him lick it a little bit? If it would have been poison, a dog would be dead. And I said, Joe, that's called animal cruelty. <laughs> Anyhow, so Nehemiah was probably wiping off, the, wiping off the cup, and all of a sudden his brother comes in to where he's working, and his brother just got back from the city of Jerusalem, which is 1,500 miles away. And he said, brother, the walls are still down and desolate and people are suffering. And there was a heaviness to it and you could see it on the face of Nehemiah. He hurt for his people. So the king saw that and said, Nehemiah, why so sad? And he was scared to tell the king because the king really didn't want the wall built. But God encouraged Nehemiah to say, my people's wall is, is burnt down and I want to go back and fix it. And God turned Nehemiah, the king's heart to Nehemiah and said, well, what do you need? And so he took out his checkbook, wrote him money for all the lumber, money for a house for Nehemiah, and sent him on his way. So he traveled 1,500 miles. Trevor talked about this last week. He didn't put that cool horse, though, in there. And he went around the city. He went around the city wall and took notes, gathered all the people together and said, We're going to rebuild this wall, and I got the power to do it. That's where we're at in chapter 3 and 4. They're getting ready to build the wall. But why two chapters? Because there's study and contrasts. There's study and contrasts. What I mean by that is in chapter 3, it's all about the builders, and they just set to work. And we're going to learn about what a character quality is of a builder. Chapter 4 are the critics. The critics just stand back and mock and criticize. And so truthfully, our task today is to compare and contrast and then you have to ask yourself, which one am I? Because in our culture, we have builders and we have critics. In our city, we have builders and we have critics. In our church, we have builders and we have critics. And you have to ask yourself, Which one am I? That's our task for today. So let's begin in chapter 4, and we're going to talk about the wall. Kind of give you an update. So if you go to chapter 3, we're going to read 1 through 4. This is how the whole chapter is going to sound. So I don't want to read the whole thing because it's very monotonous. Look at chapter 3. A lot of strange names, a lot of people involved in building the wall. Elishib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to him. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beans and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimath, son of Uriah, the son of hakkaz I don't know these names, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshallam of Barakiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, also made repairs. And this is how it reads. The whole chapter three reads like this because they're rebuilding the wall. You might not, next week you'll be able to see it a lot better, but this is the wall. And on the wall, there's 10 gates. And a gate is how you get into the city and out of the city, and so chapter three is all about the repairing of the gates and the wall. So they start with the sheep gate, where they bring the sheep in for the off, you know, for the for the sacrifices. Then they go to the fish gate. The fish gate is where the merchant fishermen would come in, and then you go all the way down the line: the old city gate, the valley gate, the dung gate. That's where they would bring the dung out, all of the refuse. You have the um, fountain gate. The water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, and then the inspection gate where the military would come in and be inspected. I don't want to go into this. Some, some pastors will turn this into a spiritual lesson. You always start at the sheep gate, always at the cross, and you always end at the cross. And then you go to the fish gate because we're fishers of men. And I, I don't like to necessarily do that with scripture where you over-spiritualize it. It's interesting, but we're going to talk about the builders there were 38 workers involved in this repair of the wall, 38, with names that are pretty hard to pronounce. There are 42 sections, you can kind of see it up there, different colors, there were 42 sections that were built, rebuilt by 42 different clans. There's about 100 to 250 unnamed people that in this section were part of, there's probably a whole lot more that contributed to this. As they say, what chapter 3 is all about, many hands make light work. That's really what this chapter is about. But I want to point three things out about the character of the builders, the character qualities of the builders. So you can say, am I one of them? Number one, builders are the people that make up the silent majority. They make up the silent majority in any nation, city, or church. And all they want to do is get to work. No fanfare, no demand for the spotlight, and they'll do whatever it takes to get the job done. The key word here is silent. What I mean by that is they are the people who let their deeds do the talking. They let their work speak for themselves. In this case, the builders did the hard work of lifting rocks. There are a lot of rocks to build that wall. They put mortar, mixed mortar, which is a hard job. If you have ever worked for a mason, it's not easy. They did a lot of cutting wood for beams, hammering nails and spikes, setting beams and bolts and metal bars, pitching in with calloused hands, sweating in the hot sun, and then they went home late at night, probably too tired to complain. Let me just show you a couple verses. Go to 3.20 of Nehemiah. 3.20. 3.20 talks about this guy, uh, Baruch, son of Zabai. And it uses this word zealously repaired another section. That word zealous means he gave his whole heart. You can see it actually in chapter 4, verse 6. Watch chapter 4, verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. These builders just worked. Look at verse uh, 21 of chapter 4. This is an interesting verse. So we continued to work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. To build this wall only took 52 days. They worked from sunup to sundown. And then look at verse 23. Neither I, this is Nehemiah talking, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me, took off our clothes. So they're wearing these sweaty clothes while they worked the whole time. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. There's some confusion about this. They would say the only time they took off their clothes is when they went to the watering hole to wash the clothes. That's kind of the implication. But the idea here is these guys just worked. They didn't have enough time to complain. These are the type of people who don't want recognition. They just want God's will accomplished. These are the type of people that don't know what the left hand is doing when the right hand's working. Builders, secondly, are people who don't consider themselves above or below the job. When they see a need, they don't ask questions, they just do it. Look at uh, verse 3, 8. This is interesting. It talks about Uzael son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths. He repaired a section. He's a goldsmith. What do goldsmiths do? Well, they hammer rings and necklaces. They do really fine work. What was he doing with working with calloused hands and putting up beams. And then the next guy right after him talks about Hananiah, one of the perfume makers. He does dainty things. He got involved. Look at verse, this is interesting. Look at verse 12. This is the first feminist movement in the Bible. Check this out. This is amazing. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of Ahasuerus of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. You go, girl. (laughs) Reminds me of the Hughes family. Daniel Hughes and his two girls would just get right to work. I can see him. Grace and Ruby get to work, and they go, get right to work. I once heard a great statement. When you work for Jesus, you learn to do the humble jobs with dignity, and the dignified or the important jobs with humility. But every once in a while, there will be this guy, the people like the nobles in three five. Look at verse 5. Every once in a while, you'll get these kind of guys. Verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. They're nobles, after all. Very important people. Don't ask the important people to do the tough jobs. Very important. About 18 years ago, it's funny, uh, there's a guy who started coming to this church. He was a mover and a shaker in the business world. He owned his own business. He had nice things, sharp dresser. He pulled me aside one day before the service in the foyer, and he began to flatter me. Proverbs says, watch out for flattering lips. But he flattered me. He said, Pastor Chris, I want to tell you, you know, that little, I want to tell you, you have a lot of potential. You really do. Your speaking's getting better Your presentations are getting more professional. But I want to caution you on one thing. And I said, well, what's that? Tell me. Well, you you do too much of the small work around the church, he said. Stop lowering yourself. You need to get more people involved with teaching Sunday school, counseling, greeting, even stacking chairs. Sir, you need to learn to delegate more. I looked at him and said, I'm so glad you said that. I'm looking for more people to teach junior high boys. I think you could do it. And then I said, I also need some people to help with widows around here. I was suggesting, now that you have asked, how would you like to help out? He stood back and he said, what? No. And he said this, I'm a busy man. I don't have time for such things. I was suggesting you get more, well, less significant people to do the work. I looked at him, I said, see, that's why I do those things. Because, like you, most people are too important to help. Like the nobles in verse 5. And the third thing about the builders is they carry their own load. In this story, time and time again, you're going to read where, oh, the section of the wall right next to the house, their house, they rebuilt. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, beyond them. This is 323. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house and next to them. Azariah, son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. It says the same thing in 28, 29, and 30. It reminds me of Galatians 6, two. It says, carry one another's burdens, but it also says, carry your own burden. In summation, builders make the world work. They make the church work. Speaking quickly about our church, just show you, we have some walls that always need repair. You can't, like, we're going to have Mark Rawson help with these things, as Ken said. But we always need nursery. That's nursery over there. You can't see too well up there. We always need greeters. We always need stair checkers, chair stackers. That's hard to say. Stair checkers, chair stackers. We always need people to work on the overheads. We're going to need people to help with the new addition. A lot of volunteer work. Get ready for that. We're going to need people to teach and paint and all kind of stuff in that new addition and all the way down the We need workers. It's funny, I was talking to a friend this week, and he shared a story with me. He owns a business, and he wanted to do a test, and he threw garbage all up and down the hallway and in the general meeting room, and he brought the, after a while, nobody picked up the garbage And he had his normal meeting with everybody. He goes, hey, I had a test. And I said, what test? He goes, did you see all the garbage? They said, yeah. He said, why didn't you pick it up? That's the test. And they all said, well, that's not my responsibility. It's not? Is this your church? Anyhow, let's go to the critics. We find the critics in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is going to highlight the behavior of two people who've already been talked about in chapter 2 that their names are easy to remember where really once we get through chapter 3, I don't remember any of those names. I read that chapter about four times and maybe that one guy in verse 12 with the two daughters I remember. But these two guys I remember. Look at uh, chapter 4, 1 through 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. And was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? It's complete mockery. Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble? Burned as they are. Then Tobiah the Ammonite who's at his side, said, yeah, what they're building, even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stone. So it's just complete mockery, making fun of the effort of the builders. That's what critics do. We don't really remember the names of chapter 3, but you will remember Sanballat and Tobiah by the end of this because they'll be talked about more and more. It's the old axiom. You can get 1,000 compliments and forget them all But you can get one complaint, and it will ruin your life. It's incredible. It's the same way with critics. The critics usually are the small minority, but they are loud. And you will hear them. And they don't stop. They're the squeaky wheel. They're the ones who are never happy. They love to put a halt on the majority, because the second thing is they just are better. They just think they're better. They love telling the few... Where they're wrong, they love that. So the question is, which are you? Are you a builder or a critic? Because honestly, did you know it's really easy to be a critic? Oh, it's easy. The critic and his cronies are the kinds of people who only want to tear down and destroy instead of building up and encouraging. There's a new philosophical term in our culture for this. It's called deconstructionism. It's being a deconstructionist. Why bleed, sweat, and shed tears trying to make things new when it's easier to mock, harass, and cynically smile while you knock other people down? That's easy. Being a critic asks nothing of you. It's a far easier path, and you get notoriety for it, especially online. Reminds me of current-day culture can name some groups that are critics. We call them looters, rioters, anarchists, and a majority of the political activists who just love to destroy. There's an all-out assault on Christian values and noble traditions that really have built this country up. And in our current culture, it seems now, the loudest voices are destroying all that. That's their job. Why do they destroy? Why did Sanballat and Tobiah destroy? I also wrestle with this. Why do people want to destroy what once was respected Myers? Why do people leave the church and smear it on their way out? Why does the small minority want to deconstruct and ruin? It's crazy because we have to be very careful this same kind of cynicism doesn't ruin your soul. I think there's three things that cause San Balat and Tobiah. The first one is just jealousy. They saw the, will, the wall was going back up, and they were going to kind of, the Jews are going to have their land again, and they're going to keep people out. And jealousy just says, basically, if I can't have something, you shouldn't be able to have it. Jealousy's terrible. Jealousy is a belief that doesn't inspire or increase the human condition it just erodes it brings everyone down and ultimately to get to the lowest common denominator so everybody's equal but when everybody's equal everybody's ruined jealousy's horrid second reason is because of prejudice they don't like the jews look what the sanballat says about them in verse 2 what are those feeble jews doing it's like, In the Hebrew, it's kind of more mockery. These (laughs) no-good Jews. No good. Prejudice is a bad thing because it affects all of us. It's in all of us. Everybody. People who are not like us in looks, economic status, race, religion. We like to keep on the margins. We must be careful of this because it's in all of us. We just want to hold on for those we care about. But did you know heaven includes all races, all nations, all tribes, and all tongues? Who are we to keep anybody out? Third thing about these guys is they're just plain evil. They have evil hearts. There's a demonic side to these two. And there's a demonic side a lot to the deconstructionists. Because Satan hates unity. He wants to use your hurt to hurt other people because the truth of the matter is hurt people hurt people. I was reading a book even on Karl Marx and a writer said, Karl Marx hated people. And in his system, he replaced God with greed. He replaced faith with skepticism and mistrust. And he replaced Self-sacrifice, giving for others, with taking all I can for myself. What happens in the evil heart is that everyone becomes, goes into it for themselves. Wives view husbands with contempt. Workers view bosses as oppressors. And politics is about destroying the other side so I can get my fair share. Critics never ask this question. They never ask this question. How do I help my neighbor flourish? Deconstruction is always led by a small, angry minority that loudly and arrogantly claim to speak for the majority. But they're never happy. They use weapons and criticism to destroy. And that's what happens in this. There's two stages of the attack. I call it the trowel stage of the attack. You're going to see the trowel stage. And then you're going to see the sword stage of the attack. The trial stage of the attack is as the builders begin to build the wall, the critics, first of all, don't take them seriously. You saw what I already read. They mocked them. Oh, a fox can't even walk on top of that wall. They're just mockery. But then they keep building. And when they keep building, critique turns to mockery, which gets them angry, and then they threaten harm because all they want is to stop the progress. They want to stop the progress. But it's tough when you got a guy like Nehemiah. Look at 4.4. Nehemiah just says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back in their own heads. Give them over as plunder. So he goes to God, and when he goes to God, they get stronger. So they keep building. And when they keep building, oh, the critics don't like that. So look what they do in verse 7. They ramp up the threats. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem, stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God. But look at verse 11. Also, our enemies said, "Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them." So these threats have been ramped up to even murder. The point is, in this first stage, trial stage, while you're building, critics are going to try to bully you because critics are bullies. Anytime workers work, they want it stopped, so if they ever can get the workers to stop, the bully wins. That's what he does. That's the whole point. Make enough threats to scare good people into inaction. If I can shut good people down, I won. But I want you to notice something about faithful people. Look at verse 9. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard and they kept working. That leads to the sword stage. When the intimidation starts ramping up to the point where they were threatening death, the builders had enough. They had enough. So instead of backing down, they met the challenge with a strong defense. That's where 12 through 18 comes in. Verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, whenever you turn, they'll attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with swords, spears, and bows. Verse 14, don't be afraid of them. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. So from that day on, verse 16, half of my men did the work While the other half were equipped with spears, shields, and bows. So you could say this when good people who trust God have enough, they need to stand strong and learn how to defend themselves because it's okay to fight back. Did you know that? Because when you fight back, when you fight back, most critics will fade away in a whimper. They're bullies, they're not fighters. As I was reading through this, I realized something. They threatened to kill them, but did you know not one builder was killed? Because Sanballat and Tobiah were nothing but blowhards, pesky irritants who were all bark and no bite. Philosopher John Stuart Mill once said this, The only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. When critics come to dismantle, good men far too often keep to their own business and would rather not interfere. In fact, that is the primary weakness of good and kind people. By nature, we're content. They are peace lovers and compassionate souls. Rarely do the builders, the good people, want to lead a revolt. They simply want to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Concerned with their own well-being. Goodness, however needs to stand up for the vulnerable because evil never stops. In truth, it's parasitical. It's never happy. Critics are parasites. Like ticks, fleas, and tapeworms, they steal life from the healthy order of things to gain power and control. They invade space. They spread and multiply, and if they're not stopped, they'll take more and more could say it like this. They want you, Mr. Builder, to be a nice, tame, quiet Christian. Aren't you a Christian? Yes, I am. Then aren't you supposed to be nice? Yes. The reason they do that is so they can win. And if you don't stand up to them, they'll be more than happy to trample over the freedoms and the innocence that you once cherished and it's happening in our culture. Innocence has been stolen. Because we don't stand up. It's tragic. So I say, speak up and stand out. And most of all, do not fear their threats. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And they hated him. He didn't back down on things he knew to be true. What is the best thing for people? The gospel. Will people like the gospel? No. But it's the best thing for people. So if I love people, I give them the best thing. You may be thinking to yourself, I know that, Chris, I know, but the critic has the ear of the crowd and that gives them all the power, especially the current activist crowd. But who cares? Who cares? Most of them are like Sanballat and Tobiah. They're blowhard. So stand strong, do God's work, boldly declare what you know to be true. Even though people may laugh at your ideas, Or get mad at you for standing strong in your convictions? If you don't risk the ridicule, you'll be giving critics what they've always wanted. Stopping the work of God on earth. One thing I found when I decided to speak up is that good people are waiting for that one person to say what they believe and stand up against the critics. And when you do, it starts a movement of the good. And when the good gets moving, they cannot be stopped. Ted Roosevelt was right. Listen to this. This is very interesting. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes out short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. There's a couple more things. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Here's how Nehemiah says it in 4.14. He says it a lot shorter, but here's how he says it. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome.